Hello and welcome to Geopod, a podcast where we look at all things spatial. It may not be rocket science, but it's geoscience. Hello and welcome back to Geopod. This week we'll be speaking to Vet, who will walk us through what she would like the ideal CV to look like. She'll also give tips on how to manage your personal brand and what you should and should not do in an interview. Enjoy! Hi Yvette. Hello. So we're just going to start off with like your origin story mm-hmm. in geoinformatics. So I, we just wanted to know how did you get into geoinformatics and why did you decide to study it? Well, I always wanted to study something in the sciences. I think throughout my time at school, um, it was always very science related. So at one stage, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I then wanted to be a geologist that moved on to being a hydrologist. And towards the end of my school career, I think I must have been about grade 10 or 11, I eventually settled on meteorology as my career of, of choice. And I chose it because I absolutely loved geography in high school. And I loved geography because I had such an amazing teacher, Mrs. Downing. She was my high school geography teacher. And she really, really made me enthusiastic about the subject. So that was it. I wanted to be a meteorologist and I had my heart set on that. And then I can't remember if it, if I was in grade 11 or if I was already in matric. I must have been towards must have been the second half of grade 11, Um, my mom, who is also a teacher, stumbled across GIS in a career focus magazine. And she brought the magazine home to me and she said, look at this article. It was a profile of someone who had studied GIS and who worked in GIS. And she said to me, "I, I think maybe this might be a better option for you. I think you would be better suited to, to something like this. And at the same time, we were doing GIS as part of geography in high school, but very basics, you know, just layers of information. I think we did map projections. So it wasn't a completely unfamiliar topic for me. So I switched. I listened to my mom's advice. And when I applied for university the next year, I applied for a BSc in geoinformatics at the University of Pretoria. And that's where I stayed for my undergrad as well as my postgrad. No, it's very cool. It's interesting that the common theme is that everyone's had really, really good geography teachers. So, yeah. Yeah, and that's something that I, I, I really take to heart. I can remember the way that Mrs. Downing used to teach us and the way she used to structure her lessons and you know bring that enthusiasm that enthusiasm to the the topic and that's always something that I've um, tried to take with me especially when I used to work as a technical trainer so yeah a teacher can make such a huge difference to to a child's development and to their career ultimately so um where do you currently work and what do you do on a day-to-day basis so I'm currently a solution engineer at Azure Australia, and I'm based in our Brisbane office. So what this means is that I work on in the pre-sales side of the business, and I work with our sales team to understand a client's business problem and how we can use our technology to, to solve that, that problem. So typically account manager will come to me and say, this particular client has this problem. Um, I will then work with that account manager and the customer to fully understand 
the problem as well as the requirements um, that the business might have. I will then go away and design a solution based on the ArcGIS platform, which is um, you know, Esri's product stack. This could mean designing a solution based solely using ArcGIS products or combining it with some of our, our partner technology. Then the job's not done. I then need to look at presenting that solution back to the customer, which we will do with um, either through a formal proposal or, or through a presentation. No, that's interesting. What skills um, do you use quite regularly that you didn't learn in your studies? Oh, that's, a, that's actually a very interesting question. So many skills. I think the, the skills that I had to really learn after university relate to, to business. So understanding how businesses work. Because you either, when you leave university, you're either going to be working for someone or you're going to be starting your own business. And to do either, you need to have a good understanding of how businesses work and just those, you know, those fundamental business sort of skills. So that is something that I had to upskill in. I also had to upskill in business analysis, formal business analysis, which is not something that is covered in a GIS curriculum in detail. I know it's touched on in certain places in the curriculum. So I actually ended up doing a full business systems analysis course, which I felt gave me the skills that I was lacking. And those are the skills that I, I use most often. Also just general, you know, working with people's skills, understanding the different types of personalities that you get out there, how to work with each type of personality. I think that was probably a very important lesson that that I learned after leaving university. I think when you leave university, you have a very defined view of the world, a very sheltered view of the world and and how to work with people. And then when you go into the working world, you realize that your views might not be relevant anymore or the way that you do things is just is not suited for the working world and you you need to change. So those are also very, very important skills that, that I have to use today and that I didn't get at university. Thanks, Rit. Um, <laughs> talking about like work experience and things like that, so I've known you quite a while. So you started out as an assistant cartographer ages ago. Yes. And so you've actually been working through your studies. I think in your third year already you were working. So. Yes. What would you say to the students about, I, I want to say like hustling from like a young age, you know? So I guess it depends on your circumstances. So for me, I actually started volunteering at KZN Wildlife back in my second year at university. And I volunteered during my holidays. And that was purely driven by the desire to get work experience because my parents had said to me, you know, when you leave university, you want to, you need to go, obviously go and look for a job and you will be in a better position if you do have some experience. So take the, take the opportunity while you're at university to volunteer and get some experience. So in second year, I went and I volunteered um, at KZN Wildlife doing mundane GIS tasks. My job was to digitize wetlands of satellite imagery. And then in my third year, 
like you correctly said, I did start working part-time for the university in order to get the experience, but also for financial reasons. So you have to be very disciplined. If you are going to work and study, you need to realize that you have to compromise somewhere else. And it's usually your social life. I know when you're at university, your social life is so important, but you need to make the decision. So either you, you focus on your academic career and you have your social life, or you focus on your academic career and you have a part-time job, whether you have that part-time job to upskill and to get experience or whether it's for financial reasons is, is completely irrelevant, but then realize that you're compromising somewhere else and it's compromising on something else, essentially. And it's difficult, especially as you progress through your academic career and you move to postgrad. So I started working part-time in my third year. In my honors year, I was working full-time as a cartographer and I enrolled full-time for the honors degree. And then that continued with my master's. So I was working full-time while doing my master's and it is a huge huge commitment and my advice is that if you don't have to work full-time and do at least your master's full-time don't so if you really are committed to getting your master's degree and you want to do it in the minimum time then only focus on that because the sacrifices that you have to make to work full-time and study full-time are significant. It's not something that you should take lightly. But I fully understand that financially, not everyone privileged enough, you know, to that choice. So either or, just take some time to, to think about your decision. I think you gave very eloquent advice <laughs> i'm not always so eloquent with my words and i think all three of us can also relate to that it becomes quite rough so and it does it yeah and you end up putting in you know obviously a huge amount of hours into mm. into your academic career and it's stressful you've got those deadlines those rolling deadlines but you still have your work commitments and, you know, some people might have families on top of that, that they yeah. trying to juggle all of, all of these commitments and never underestimate it. So especially people who are stepping into the, the working environment and if they're not exposed to the corporate way of doing things, those first three to four months of going into your first formal job, are rough you are absolutely exhausted at the end of the day if you're not exhausted at the end of the day then you're, you're not doing something um correctly because it take you're trying to adapt to a new way of doing things a, a new culture you're trying you're trying to learn you're absorbing all this information you are absolutely exhausted by the end of the day and to still have to go home and then work on a proposal because at that stage you're probably doing you know the proposal for your research and that type of thing, it's, it's draining and you, you really have to balance the two very, very carefully. So I would not recommend that you start an academic year. So I would, I would say you're either honours or masters. Don't do that while stepping into a, your first job. If you have to work and study, 
take a break from that academic career, go and start your first job, get into the swing of things for the first year, decide if you, then you will know if you really, really want to step back into, into academics. If you do need to, to work and study, then just leave it for another year. Well, that's very good advice. Yeah, it's something I feel quite strongly about. Hi, Vic. So I think when I first met you, you worked at Esri South Africa in the Midrand offices. And now Correct. you work at Esri Australia. Yes. How did you land your job at Esri South Africa and then from there subsequently moved out to Australia? Is there an Esri internal network or how did no, you go about this? Um, there is no internal network or a way of moving. Um, it's simply an opportunity presented itself um, at Esri Australia and I I took it with, with both hands. I thought it was a good time in my career to get some international exposure. I had always admired Esri Australia for the way that they did things. I'd always thought it would be nice to join such a company when the time was right. And, you know, my personal life and where I am in my career, it makes sense to, to do the switch. So I have been very happy. I think it, it was a, a very good decision. I'm glad to hear that. And then how did you get your job with Edgy South Africa? I got my job at Edgy South Africa actually through one of the lecturers who used to work at the University of Pretoria, who then subsequently went on to Edgy South Africa. And it was actually a, an interesting story. And um, Victoria was, <laughs> Victoria had a big part to play in this as well. I was presented with two job opportunities, one more research focused and one the, obviously the, the the technical trainer job at Esri South Africa and I was sitting with both these offers and just kind of going between the two not sure which one I should take I ultimately decided on Esri South Africa for financial for financial reasons and also the opportunity to travel I would have had to travel quite a bit for, for my role at Esri South Africa. So that was ultimately what prompted my decision. But yeah, no regrets. I don't believe in uh, living life with regrets. So I learned a lot during my time at Esri South Africa. It's a great company to, to work for. Yeah, happy, happy five years there. Glad to hear that. It seems like everyone loves working there, which is actually quite nice because <laughs> when you go out to work, it's important you find a company in a culture that you like so it's good that yes. you found yours yes but i think everyone should realize especially people who have not yet entered the the working world that there is no such thing as a perfect job so no matter where you end up there will be things that you don't like about your job there will be things that you don't necessarily like about the company culture and that's life you you won't find, you know, this this perfect dream job where you are happy every every day of your life, and it's you know it's it's all roses. And I think I've I've seen many people who who leave university, start their first job, and within two or three months want to leave. They want to quit and go somewhere else because it's not meeting their expectations. So some more advice, my, you know, some humble advice from me is 
stick it out, at least stick it out for a year, especially if it's your, if it's your first job. Oh, I'm actually glad to hear that. It's quite a refreshing take on things. So just let's talk about job hunting now. What do you yes. recommend are the do's? So I'm leaving university end of this year. What are the do's I do to go find a job? And what are the, the don'ts? So I think, well, let's start with not limiting yourself to opportunities that you think you deserve based on, on what you study. So no matter what it is that you studied, you would have gained skills in a variety of areas. Take GIS, for example. If you're leaving university, you're going to be very tempted to go and only look for jobs that have, you know, GIS in, which makes sense. You're going to look for those keywords. If you're on any of the, the job searching portals, you will set up your filters to only return um, GIS things. But in this day and age, when jobs are scarce and the global situation is what it is, don't limit yourself to, to a subset of jobs. Broaden your horizons. Understand that the skills that you learned while studying for GIS are perfectly applicable to, to other things. So, for example, if you studied GIS, open yourself up to opportunities maybe in the broader business intelligence space because all the data work that you did in your undergrad degree, all the statistics that you did, all the informatics that you did mean that you at least have the basics to get you started in a business intelligence career. So don't limit yourself, broaden your horizons. The second thing is relating to your CV. So in my previous role in South Africa, I used to get many CVs to look at and make recommendations for. And the worst thing was getting to the last page of a CV and still not understanding anything about that applicant because there was there weren't any personal details about that person. And I think it's because in, in the South African school curriculum, you're taught how to do a CV and life orientation in, you know, grade nine or 10 or whatever it is. And for some reason, that's the thing that people stick with. And it's the template that they then carry on, try and get their first job. And you shouldn't. That template is not, it's not a good idea if you're looking for your first job. So, Put some time and effort into your CV. Make sure that it is attractive and that it stands out. It should be personal. If you don't have any work experience, you are very often tempted to fill it up with details about what you did at school. And I think this, again, comes from the life orientation and school templates. So very often, you know, in these CVs, we will see a list of bullet points. And, you know, then they were part of the student council when they were in grade 10. And you know, that information is great, but it's not really going to help people decide whether you are a good fit for a company. So. If you find yourself in a position where you don't have a lot of information to put on your CV because you don't have experience, then put other information, not stuff that you, you know, not things relating to school, not the fact that you were the great three rugby captain, but put in what drives you. So put in your career aspirations. So you be open about the fact that you don't have any experience, but you can say, you know, but this is the type of role that I aim to be in. This is my overall career goal. This is where I see myself in five to 10 years. And I know it's not easy to sit down 
and sort of work out where you want to be in five to 10 years. It's very difficult to have that conversation with yourself, but you need to do it. So put in there the type of person that you are, the type of work that you think you're going to enjoy, really flesh out the soft skills that you, you would have gotten along the way at university and that you have. So that when the person gets to the end of the CV, they have an idea of who that applicant is. At the end of it, I must know, okay, Cameron is this type of person and I can see that he's ambitious and he's goal-driven and it looks like he would be a good fit in this particular business. Put in, where, mix it up, look, have a mixture of you know, paragraphs that tell a story about yourself and then back it up with, with facts and knowledge. Also, what really used to drive me mad is looking at CVs and not knowing if the person has finished or not. Okay, so we've spoken about CV. So what's next? Uh, let's talk about oh, LinkedIn. Make use of LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a, a great tool if you're, you're searching for jobs for many reasons. First of all, it's got the ability or the capability to let recruiters know that you're open to opportunities. There's a little button that you press on your profile and recruiters, when they look at your profile, they'll see, oh, that you are open to, to opportunities. It also allows you to start having a voice in your community. So spend some time, you know, see what people are talking about and contribute to, to the conversation. Don't be a, a silent observer on LinkedIn. Contribute, get your name out there, but be careful about what you post. LinkedIn is a great way of establishing your personal brand. So decide what it is that your personal brand is going to be and use LinkedIn to start creating that. So if, with my LinkedIn, for example, I'm very particular about what I react to. So I don't just you know, like and react to, to everyone's post, very particular about what it is that I react to and what it is that I post. And make sure that it always aligns with how I want to be seen in the industry and as a professional. You know, you, your Facebook and your Instagram, those are there for you to post your personal posts and carry on obviously be careful because we we've seen how many people have lost their jobs due to what they've posted on on you know facebook twitter and instagram so be careful but linkedin is your professional network so act professional and post thoughtfully but it's a great way of, of getting your your name out there it's also a great way of seeing what keywords you should put in your cv so do some mm. research Go and look at people's profiles. And I am shameless in this. I actively go and look at people's profiles. I go and look at the experience and I see what keywords they are using. And I, I even would go and like screenshot or down, because you can download people's profiles to PDF, download their, their profiles, take screenshots of the keywords that they had used, and then made sure to include those keywords in my CV. So you're making sure that you're aligned with the thought leaders in your, your industry. Finally, let's talk about interviews. So you get invited to an interview, which is, it's nerve wracking for anyone. It doesn't matter how many job interviews you go on. I think you will always be nervous. So don't talk yourself out of a room that you deserve to be in. So you've worked so hard to get yourself you know, to the interview and to get you to position yourself in a way that makes them want to interview you, don't get there and talk yourself out of the room by, you know, playing down your downplaying your skills or saying, oh, you know, I'm not very smart, but I, you know, I make do and that type of thing. Talk yourself up. 
talk about the experiences that you've you've had again if you don't have work experience to relate to, learn to while you're at university talk about where you want to be and trust yourself if they ask you a question that you think you can't trust yourself with your answer and if you don't know be honest so just say you know what i i don't know but uh this is what i would do to find out the information to to answer the question and just say no i don't know really talk about something else distract them with another topic but yeah be honest be yourself and trust yourself just be genuine people when they're interviewing people they can see if you're genuine or if you're putting on an act so yeah and people understand i mean no one's looking for the perfect candidate no one's ever going to interview someone and say oh well you know we're looking for for these skills and these traits everyone understands that they're never going to get that perfect candidate but it's about letting them know what kind of candidate you can turn into letting them know that they should invest in you because you will bring value because you are ambitious and you are keen to learn. Opinion, by the way. So you spoke now about having a look at people's CVs and being, and that you deserve to be in that yes. interview room. What would you say is a top way to make sure that your CV, so you have like 10 CVs across your desk. What's a surefire way to make sure that my CV will stand out? I mean, or necessarily me as a person. So what skills do you think I need to have that can actually make me as a person look employable? What are your top three, let's say? Um, sure, it's difficult to narrow it down because a CV stands out when it's the whole package. So not only does it look good, and you know, we are spoiled with CV templates today. There are so many. If you do some research, you will find a really nice one, not an elaborate one, okay? We don't need big flashy ones, but you know, a clean CV, maybe with a little bit of color, so that if I have, you know, 10 CVs on my desk, the one that's got a bit of color is the one that's gonna stand out. And this is something that my previous boss actually taught me. He would always make sure that the cover page, the cover pages of his documents were very bright color. And then he said, because you know, people have so much paper on their desks. And if they print out the CV and yours is in a mix of paper there, you want yours to stand out. So make sure that there is some color, which I thought was quite an interesting tip, but it is something that I've taken on board. So all my CVs have just, just a very subtle border down the side. Make sure that it looks good. Please proofread it or get someone to proofread it. Make sure that there are no spelling mistakes or obvious grammatical errors. So, you know, practical things like that. In terms of skills, I think the willingness to learn and the willingness to be flexible and the ability to adapt to situations are probably skills that I personally would rank very high up on my priority list. To be honest, how people do in university modules has never really impacted my opinion of a person um, based on their CV. So if you, know, if you only scraped a, a 50 for maths, then that doesn't really Im impact my assessment of you. In fact, I think you shouldn't actually even put that information on your, your CV. So things like that don't really con concern me. Depending on the role, they will look to see what, it, what your experience is. I do know that for some companies, they will look to see what you chose, grade 10, 11, and 12 at school. They're looking specifically to see if you chose maths and science 
irrespective of what your university degree ended up. I have heard of that. And there are different reasons for that. But for me, I prefer, I'd rather take someone who is willing to learn, but maybe didn't do as well and in university as someone who was, you know, top of the class, straight A's as, as they say, but is not willing to learn or is not willing, you know, to make sacrifices and is not willing to adapt to the work environment. Yeah, especially what you were saying now is something the three of us talk about quite often because, as you know, Cameron and Anazile did like an internship in their honors year and their marks definitely they did have to sacrifice a marks for that. But I think all the other experiences and things that you pick up from that was worth it. So yes hopefully yeah, that and, also puts them at ease yeah no definitely and you know people in the business world when when you think about people that you're you're working with i will happily work with anyone that is a pleasure to work with you know someone that is you know, easygoing who's a team player who you know who's happy to listen to all points of view gets along with everyone i'd happily work with that kind of person rather than someone who might be, you know, super smart, but is, is difficult to, to work with. So those people skills that you build up while interning and, and doing the types of roles that you two are doing is super, super valuable. Okay, so next topic, Yvette. What is your favorite tools at the moment? So we like to ask our guests this so that the listeners can have a look at various tools that are out there and what is the latest and the greatest. Okay, so I don't know if you want to hear this, but my favorite tool at the moment has got nothing to do with GIS. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So my favorite tools at the moment are the digital whiteboarding tools, which I think have suddenly become very, very popular given the fact that everyone has to now collaborate remotely. So I'm experimenting with a few whiteboarding tools. The one is Miro, the other one is Lucidchart. I'm also experimenting with Microsoft Whiteboard because they're bringing in a few new features there. And it's really helped me while we're working from home so to collaborate with colleagues on things, but also for myself. So I've found that many of these whiteboarding tools come preloaded with the most amazing templates or templates, as we say here in Australia. And a lot of them are, and for different areas of business. So for example, I stumbled across the business analysis templates in Miro and they had all the the common ones like the fishbone diagram and the five whys and a lot of brainstorming templates. And I love those. I think it's such a, a great way to organize your thoughts and to ensure that you think through an idea properly from beginning to end. And I know you do get exposed to when you're at university, especially if you are studying a BSc Geoinformatics at the University of Pretoria, because I know you do many of those informatics modules. And I know one of the first year modules, well, back in the day when, when, you know, when I was a first year, there's that system design theory module, I think it's called, and they go through all of these templates. I know they've got the six, the six thinking hats and you, you look at all of those as part of that module and all those templates templates are actually part of these digital whiteboarding tools which which I love and um, it's not useful for everyone not everyone likes to work visually like that but I do so at the moment that's top of my list I feel like I have a hammer and I'm looking for some nails 
because <laughs> everything, everything that I do now has to be in a digital whiteboard with a template. I absolutely love it. But if we look at some of the GIS tools at the moment, but you know, Python is always my favorite, one of my favorite things to have in my toolbox when doing any nitty gritty GIS analysis. So I'm sure it'll make Victoria very happy to, to hear that. If we look at actual tools, and I'm obviously going to refer to the ArcGIS platform here, my most favorite ArcGIS application and one that I think is the most useful is an application called ArcGIS Insights and that is really our work it's our analytical workbench that brings in a lot of traditional business intelligence and statistical capabilities into GIS and it's super user-friendly it's very modern so it allows us to have our maps but also these very whizzy charts and graphs and, and cool things. So that's probably my, my favorite tool at the moment. Yeah, Python is important for me for class purposes because we do teach the students this semester Python. And I think it's important that they at least know some very basics. So you and yes. I have spoken a bit about like geocoding and things like that. So where yes. Python can be quite useful. Python can be useful in just about everything. So we've got to the point now where we're using Python not only for for analysis and but also for those more traditional data science applications. So we're seeing a lot of traditional data science capabilities being built into our platform. But we also use Python for a lot of the admin on the on the enterprise GIS side. So we've got a Python API. It's got a few admin modules in there. So it doesn't matter what you're going to be doing with GIS, mm. whether you are doing the, the more analytical side or whether you are going more to the IT side, Python is a, a really good tool to have and in some cases there's there's no out-of-the-box tool to do something and the only way you will be able to do it is with Python yeah. so I strongly rec recommend all your students spend some time upskilling in, in Python and maybe trying to take it beyond just the basics you know and while we're on the topic there are so many great free Python courses out there and I know many of the the big online online learning platforms are making their courses free or they half price quarter price you know while everyone is stuck at home so make use of that opportunity get yourself on a Python for data science course to upskill a bit you'll learn so much and it looks great on your CV as well. So then what is your typical day-to-day -day look like I know things are a bit different at this moment but just to give give the students an idea of what it is like to go to the office every day. So our work day is from nine to five. So on a typical work day where, where we are allowed to be in the office, I will arrive at work. I usually spend the first 30 minutes, 30 minutes to an hour catching up on product news and chatter posts that would have come through overnight um, from the greater Esri community. So many of, uh, well, a lot of that information comes through overnight because of the, the time difference. So usually, you know, the first part of that day is catching up on any new product changes. And so that can be things like, oh, we're going to change name of a product, or this is what's going to be released in the next quarter, that type of thing. Our chatter posts are our internal sort of like social media platform where people can post questions, get answers to from within the, the greater Esri community. So 
I'll catch up on that. At the moment, we have a daily stand-up. That's when the whole team gets together and quickly runs through what they did the day before and what they plan on doing for the day ahead. This is obviously critical now that everyone is, is working from home. So at the moment, do a 30-minute daily stand-up, just report back. If we're, in in the, if we're in the office, we obviously don't do that stand-up. My team, but my team, because we're a national team and are geographically separated, we'll have a stand-up once a week and where everyone says what they've done and last week, what they're doing this week. So I'll also check in on Slack. So Slack is the workspace that we use to keep touch with each other within solution engineering. It's another place for us to pose questions to the broader team and get answers to. So I'll check in on there and to see if there's any interesting questions or anything that I can contribute to. Then my day will be basically looking at whatever opportunity I'm working on. So typically it will be talking to the business development manager those are the people that bring us opportunities so understanding what they're working on if i'm working on a particular opportunity it might mean speaking to a client so either going to the client's office and nowadays it's obviously virtual meetings so discussing the requirements with the the customer understanding their pain points then it will be looking at the solution design, which is me sitting down, sketching out the solution could look like. It could mean me collaborating with other team members. Once we've got that, we will write, we have to write a document about what it is that we've designed and then collaborate with the other teams that need to have an input on that. So it's all about teamwork as you, as you can gather. If I'm not working on a particular opportunity, so we're not working on a design for a customer, typically find solution engineers testing new functionality. You know, so this is now just testing new features and functions that are available in the platform or doing some professional development. So this might mean just going through some of the Esri conferences that we didn't get to attend, just watching some of the videos. It could mean working towards a technical certification. So either doing opportunities or testing functionality. The other thing that we, we will typically do is technical enablement. So we do that by internally educating other users in the business so because we're the team that's always on top of the, the latest changes because we, we need to be, we are also responsible for feeding that information back to other technical users in the business. And we do that through internal presentations, but we also do external webinars where we will, I think we do it every two weeks, where we will have a webinar for clients on, you know, different topics. Sure. Sounds like a busy day. So just the last question, how does the South African community differ from the Australian community? Is, have you picked up in the last couple of months that you've been in Australia some differences in the geospatial community or is it very the same? It's, there's no major differences. And I think many people think that there is a big difference. And before I came over, I used to be one of those people that thought, oh, you know, it must be very different to how we do things in South Africa. It's not really. I can't say that one is more advanced than the other because that's, that's not the case. So there are no major differences. For example, if I'm working in GIS at, let's say, a mining company in South Africa, it's very, very similar 
to, to what happened in Australia. I think that the biggest difference and where you see it, it's the different focus areas. And I think it's just because, you know, the, the two communities have very different problems to solve. And if we look, well, let's take a common problem in South Africa, addressing. So, you know, in South Africa, a great problem is that many people don't have a formal address. And that has severe knock-on consequences for the GIS community. For example, in the commercial sector, if you look at insurance, the fact that you can't formally place a person at an address has implications in the way that they do insurance in South Africa and the way that they do any geospatial analysis. So Mm. things relating to addressing are very important in South Africa. And you'll see that in many of the geospatial workflows in many areas of business, but you won't necessarily see that here in Australia because they just have different problems that they, they, they focus on. I do think, I mean, I think this, this is a, a personal observation, only being here for six months. So, but I, I think that the South African geospatial community is younger. It's got a very strong young workforce. And my observation is that the appetite to try new things is greater in South Africa than it is here. But I do find when working with the community in South Africa, you know, people are always up to try something new. It doesn't matter if the product or the solution doesn't quite meet their requirements, you know, they're up to try it. Let's see how far we can push things to get Mm. things to work. Whereas you won't necessarily find that in all industries here. But I think it's just because of the way that South Africa works. You know, very South Africans tend to be very innovative and we are used to solving problems because things don't work the way that they're supposed to work. And I think you see that in all industries, whether you're talking about the geospatial community, whether you're talking about retail, it doesn't matter. I just think that South Africans do approach problems differently. Well, that's good to hear because I think the perception is that we are quite behind on everything and no you know so it's good to know that or good for the audience at least to know that we are not no i will admit that i wondered about that before moving to australia and you kind of think you know looking at a first world country you always assume that they are better at everything and that you are always Mm. behind you know when you live in a third world country but no I don't believe that the South African geospatial industry lags behind the Australian community or or any geospatial industry in the world. I think that there are some amazingly smart people in in industry. And I do believe that our GIS curriculums at university in South Africa are world-class. I think they are the most diverse. And I, I think that graduates from South African universities tend to be more well-rounded because they are exposed you know to programming to informatics i know that they've well i was still when i was there you know business analysis business Mm. law all of those things you are exposed to in your degree so i no one should be worried that they're lagging behind the rest of the world yeah i also think we are pretty great at the university at least but yeah we often hear of people that say no but they want to go and do their postgraduate studies overseas because then they want to now actually learn the real things no because i mean you have to look at um, i'm sure you're in a much better position to comment on this because you did 
do a stint overseas. I mean, well, as you did I. As but, well. <laughs> yeah, as, as did I. But you have to realize that the focus is different. And I think mm. that the, the level of detail that is covered in an undergraduate degree at a South African university, or at least the, you know, the, the counts SAGC accredited mm. um, degrees, the level of detail that is included at an undergrad level, you won't find in the undergrad degree degrees overseas and you'll find a lot of the information the things that you will do in your honors year will only be covered at a master's level overseas and the other thing you have to realize is you know the difference between doing a research master's and doing a coursework master's yeah and you know can it's like apples and oranges so if you want to go for the experience then go for it it's a it's a a life-changing experience but going purely for the quality of the education no no definitely i 100 percent agree with you that is the end period thank you very much thank you very much for tuning into this week's episode of geopod be sure to follow us on twitter at the geopod and if you enjoyed this podcast tell a friend to tell a friend and remember it's not rocket science but it's geoscience bye now